Good morning to you all. We're in the middle of a series on the subject of being church, and we're looking at some of the aspects, different aspects of what it means to be the kind of church that God intended the church to be. And so far, we've looked at being a worshiping church, a naturally supernatural church, a welcoming and accepting church, and a praying church. And today, we're going to be taking a look at being an outward-looking church. Let me share a story with you about one of our members called Rainbow. Her name is Rainbow. She's part of the Mandarin-speaking community we have within the church here. And she'd heard some of the stories, just as you heard in the interviews then, of people going out and talking to people about Jesus and offering to pray and all this sort of thing. And she felt inspired. And so she took a number of Why Jesus leaflets and also booklets and also some leaflets about upcoming events, put them in her bag. And she went to Tesco's in Beeston and she was praying and just asking God, Lord, give me the courage to speak in English, which is her second tongue. And, you know, she's saying, God, who would you like me to talk to? And she stepped into Tesco's and uh, she sensed God prompt her to go over to a magazine rack. And when she turned around, she saw a guy who looked Chinese standing right in front of her. And he was busily looking for something. And she thought, thank you, God, I found someone. I may not even need to speak English. And I hope this guy speaks Mandarin as I do. And... Anyway, she secretly started following this guy around Tesco's <laughs> for, she says, five minutes, praying, God, would you give me a word for this person? And then suddenly this guy turns around, looks at her, and asks her in Mandarin where to find something in the store. And so she led him to the right place, and they started a conversation, and she introduced a little bit of her personal story. She gave him a Why Jesus booklet, and this guy who introduced himself as Wen then told Rainbow that he often thought about the purpose of life, and there's got to be something worth, much more worth living for. And so she invited him to the Mandarin-speaking Bible study and also to Alpha. Wen has since been coming to Alpha, where he has opened his heart to Jesus, and he continues to come to the uh, Mandarin Bible study group. And he's reading the Bible so he can understand the Christian faith. And last Sunday evening, he brought four of his friends to the baptism service. Awesome, awesome. Being outward-looking is one of the five hallmarks that we mentioned in the Vision Talk in February, and these hallmarks are really the way we do what we do as a church. If you've not heard that Vision Talk, you can access it on our website. No matter what kind of activity we undertake as a church, being outward-looking is a quality that, by God's grace, I believe shines through this church. But it's also something, of course, that we all, as individuals, can continue to grow in. Now, for the structure of this talk today, it'll be slightly different. Over the years, Debbie and I have collected various wise little sayings or little phrases, which we call axioms, and they say something important in a very short phrase. And when we use these phrases with people who are familiar with them, a huge amount can be communicated with just a few words. Now, some of them have been borrowed from other seasoned leaders, people all around the world, people like Bill Hybels, John Wimber, John Mumford. Uh, I'm sure we've made up a few of our own. And we've collected about 50 of these axioms now. You may be pleased to know we're not actually going to go through the list of 50 this morning. But I would like with you to look at four of them, which really speak into this issue of being outward looking. And most of you may have heard what, at least one of them before, but I'm hoping they'll give you an insight insight into how and why we are 
an outward-looking church. So the first one of these axioms is doing the stuff. Many years ago, we hosted a number of conferences called Doing the Stuff, where we had teaching, and then we went out in the afternoons and did the stuff. Now, the phrase um, originated with John Wimber, who was the founder of the Vineyard Movement, planted the first, really started the vineyard in uh, California. It's now in over 60 countries of the world, and um, it all began there. And when he started following Jesus from a completely non-Christian, completely atheist background, he discovered somebody told him about the Bible. He'd never heard of the Bible. He said, wow, God's got a book out. I've got to find it. And so it was a Sunday, and he had to travel around to try and find a bookshop, found himself a Bible. And he read it, and he loved particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these stories, the uh, historical accounts of the life of Jesus. And he loved everything he read about him. And as he saw what Jesus did, he thought, wow, we get to be followers of Jesus, and the disciples did it with him, and we get to do this stuff, these healings and miracles and casting out demons. He then went to church, and he was a bit disappointed after two or three visits there, I think. They didn't seem to be actually doing any of that stuff. And John recalls that they sang about it, they preached about it, they even cried about it, they prayed over it, they gave to it, but they never actually did it. And so following one church service, he approached the pastor, and he asked him, so when, when do we do the stuff? And the pastor said, the stuff, what is the stuff? And he said, you know, the stuff in the Bible, like healing the sick and casting out demons, the stuff. And this pastor said, well, we don't actually do the stuff. We just, we just have to believe that it was done once. And John was really confused, and he, he could only say, I gave up drugs for this. You know, this experience that he thought was so exciting, suddenly I've just got to sing hymns and talk about stuff. So he eventually became convinced that Christians were meant not only to believe what Jesus said, but also to actually do the stuff themselves. And he devoted much of his life to training the church in doing the stuff. He's since gone to be with the Lord, but he had a huge impact on the Christian church really across the Western world in this whole emphasis. If you read Jesus' teaching, it was clear that he wanted his followers to not only believe, but also to do, to put the words, his words, into practice. So in uh, Luke 6, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus wanted his followers to be people who act on what they believe. In Matthew 10, we read about when Jesus called the 12 disciples to him and gave them instructions, gave them a job description, if you like. Matthew 10, verse 1, he called his 12 disciples to him, gave them authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and illness. And then he instructs his disciples to proclaim this message, the kingdom of God, sorry, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Jesus' teaching to his disciples was that they would do what he himself had been doing, that they would be empowered to carry on what he had begun. And he sent them out, not just with a message to talk about the kingdom of God, but to demonstrate it, the words and the works of his kingdom. And essentially, the job descriptions that Jesus gave his disciples are the same ones that he gives to all of his followers, including those of us here. Jesus wants us to do the stuff, and to not just be believers, but to be people of action. Maddie, one of our youth 
had until a few weeks ago been experiencing pain in her hip and numbness in her thigh since August last year when she did some Duke of Edinburgh expedition. And the doctor had said it was due to nerve damage. She damaged something uh, in her hip. And it was causing her excruciating burning pain. She was often seen walking around her house clutching a hot water bottle against her hip. And during one of the Trent Youth events called Alive, Susie, who we just saw on the stage here, our youth pastor, gave a talk on healing, and she encouraged the youth to pray for one another. So Maddie's friends and one of the leaders gathered around to pray for her hip, which was particularly painful that evening. And um, after praying, she checked her hip, and this is what she said, it felt great. The pain had disappeared. I was amazed and so thankful to God I could, couldn't stop smiling that night. And she said, I, it wasn't until a couple of weeks later I realized that not only had the pain gone, but so had the numbness. God had healed my damaged nerve completely. And since then, I've been able to swim, do my workouts, and run without any problems with my hip. True, God truly and wholly healed my damaged nerve. A number of our small groups, along with the worship and newcomers teams, have jointly hosted a couple of acoustic nights at Beeston's uh, Costa over the last six months, and they're primarily aimed at those with no connection to church, and so they're all given free drinks, and these evenings are a mix of acoustic worship, people from Trent sharing stories, their own personal stories, and at the last event, there was some team outside also praying for people, and during that evening, four people said they were interested in coming to Alpha, and four people made a decision to open their hearts to Jesus. The team came across one guy whose knees were really painful. He'd been trying to join the Navy, had not been successful because of this trouble with his knees. And he was prayed for. Afterwards, he said that his knees were completely better. One guy who was working behind the bar at Costa at the first acoustic evening, which was November, he started out pretty cynical about what the team was doing, but uh, had become interested by the end of the night, and so he turned up here at church with his four-year-old on Easter Sunday and apparently loved it. And he wasn't actually due to work on the second of these evenings, um, but he came along anyway and ended up going along to the pub with some of the team afterwards. And he's still connecting with people from the church on a regular basis. He's on a, a journey, really, of working out what he believes about God. So we're called to partner with Jesus to see the kingdom of God extended. We're called to do the stuff wherever we are. And I'm thrilled to hear so many stories like what we've heard and we just heard on the stage from those teenagers. Absolutely amazing. People stepping up, stepping out, and taking some risks. We may not see the immediate answers to all our prayers every time we step out, but our willingness to serve others and our care for their welfare, it speaks volumes, you know, about the love that God has for people. When you pray for someone, they've never been prayed for perhaps in their life before. Why would you do that? They don't believe in the person you're speaking to necessarily, but it's an incredibly affectionate and loving thing uh, to do, to step out of your comfort zone into someone else's space and bless them. The second of these, uh, these little axioms, I'm not sure who said this first, may have been John Mumford, I don't know. I've said it for so many years, maybe I even made it up myself. You, many of you, of you will have heard me say this. We're not here to fill pews. We're not here to fill pews and wait to go to heaven. We are called to be an army of activists. We're gonna change this city, have an influence on changing the city, changing the nation, and beyond. And if this is your only experience of church and you're new to faith, you may or may not be familiar with what a pew is. It's like a really uncomfortable, hard wooden bench that you find in most uh, historic churches. Now, if your idea of church is turning up here on a Sunday and sitting in 
a more comfortable version of a pew, a chair, just sitting and receiving, you'll probably find this an uncomfortable place to be because the church as we see it is an army sent by the Lord to do the work of extending the kingdom of God. There is work to be done. In Luke chapter 10 that I just read from earlier, or did I? I think maybe that was Matthew. It must have been kingdom of heaven versus kingdom of God. This is a private conversation I seem to be having <laughs> in public for no apparent reason. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town. <laughs> yeah, town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you. So, Jesus sent his disciples in pairs ahead of him, and he tells them, you are workers. He says, pray for workers to be sent out, now go. You are God's workers. You're sent on a mission. And that mission is not just to become part of a Sunday club called church for the rest of your life. It's to go wherever he sends us and to represent him wherever we find ourselves. We're the church together, uh, gathered you know, here on uh, times on Sundays and in small groups. We're not just the church then. We're also sent by God from here. Wherever you work, wherever you spend your week, you are ambassadors of Christ. You are the church. The church is not a physical building. The Bible's clear the church consists of members. We, the people in the church, and we are the church when we're washing up the dishes in our student house. We are the church when we're delivering a parcel in our van. We are the church when we're at the school gate when we're at our office, when we're in a staff meeting. We are the church when we're spending time with friends who don't know Jesus. We're the church every day of the week. I love the film we just saw from DTI, Dreaming the Impossible, and those interviews. And at DTI this year, each church was encouraged to participate. They had spent the year filming bits and bobs from their cities. So we were there and we saw some of those films. And um, under the heading, Love Your City, and one of the leaders in Trent Youth thought it'd be fun to film our youth actually going out and blessing the community. And so some of our youth got together some flowers and some sweets, and they got on the tram out there just to head into town and bless people. And sitting on that tram was a couple who know one of our staff. They're not church people, but they are aware of our church because they've been to a few events here. Anyway, two of these youth, they reported, were sitting near them and they were chatting about what they were going to say. And, you know, one of them said to the other, what are we meant to say? Jesus loves you. Anyway, they gave out these sweets and flowers and telling people about God and basically being lovely and sweet to everyone, being great examples of what young people can be like. And these friends reported back to our staff member, thought it was such a nice gesture. They said, you know, if, if I was to buy into church, I would buy into Trent Vineyard. You know, your church is amazing, what you've done with these young people. Yesterday morning, four people from here went into Long Eaton to ask people the miracle question, which Mark Marks had talked about a couple of months ago when he was here. Essentially, this question is this. It's a great conversation opener. If Jesus could do a miracle in your life today, what would you ask him to do? And they had the privilege yesterday morning of leading three people to Jesus. 
One teenage couple with a baby, they both recently lost young friends tragically, and so they asked if they could pray with them about their loss, and that then led them to, uh, onto them coming to the Lord. The other person was another teenager who'd just become a mother four weeks ago, and they led her to the Lord, and then one of them offered practical help and support in cooking with some meals for her, which she gladly accepted. So we're not made to just come and enjoy church and go home again to get our needs met as a spectator. Hebrews 13.13, this is Eugene Peterson's version in the message. So let's go outside where Jesus is, where the action is, not trying to be privileged insiders. We, like the disciples, are called out of our comfort zone to go out, to spend ourselves outside of our own needs, to look outside of ourselves, outside of our walls. David Pitches, Debbie's father, said decades ago that the meeting place is the learning place for the marketplace. The third axiom I want to talk about is this. The meat is in the street. And this is another one from John Wimber and originated in a conversation he was having with a church member who was complaining that the teaching in his church was not meaty enough for them. The Bible talks about spiritual food and Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, who was also one of the founding members of the early church, he talked about believers being like babies, craving spiritual milk so that by it they may grow up in their salvation. So there's milk and there's meat. And it's fair to say that the way we approach preaching and teaching here on a Sunday is that we want to open up what the Bible teaches in a way that's accessible to people exploring faith and also people who are young in their faith. And at the same time, to give some of those followers who've been following Jesus maybe for decades something to chew on. Now, we would absolutely encourage people to read the Bible, spend time mining the depths of truth which it contains, which a lifetime would even not enable you to scratch the surface of. But Sunday services have a broader purpose. In our Sunday sermons, we're not so much aiming to deliver a deep expository lecture, but rather applying what the Bible says to everyday life in a widely accessible and a practical way. And John Wimber said this phrase, the meat's on the street, in response to that mature church member saying the teaching isn't deep enough for them, not meaty enough to really deepen their spiritual, their scriptural knowledge and mine the deep spiritual truths in the text. There's just not anything meaty enough to really chew on. And John said, you know, the Bible is a lot like a menu that you would find in a restaurant, worth studying, worth engaging deeply with. But it's not supposed to be just about chewing on the menu. It's there to point to something more, to tell us about the food itself, what's on offer. And uh, Jesus, having spent some time with leading a Samaritan woman to faith in him, said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so on a Sunday, we read some of the menu, as we are today. We talk about what it's describing. And then we're supposed to leave here and put it into practice. I would encourage you at the end of any sermon to be free to ask yourself the question, so what? Not in a derogatory way, but simply, so what does that mean to me? Uh, you know, what will I believe differently as a result of hearing what I have today? And what will I do with it? Indeed, how will it change the way I behave this week? The meat, the real food, is out there in the street. 
as we live out the application of what the Bible teaches us. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. He talked about various roles of influence and leadership in the church. And Ephesians 4, verse 11, Christ gave himself, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So along with those with apostolic and prophetic ministries, those who are gifted in evangelism, pastors and teachers have the primary function to equip God's people for works of service. Two chapters earlier in that same letter, Paul writes this, Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Jesus went around, he modeled what doing the Father's will involve, and his teaching was incredibly accessible, it was amazingly practical, he spent three years of his earthly ministry living out what he was saying, and he not only healed people, he went and sought out those whose society hated, rejected, shared the good news of the kingdom wherever he went. And he's now sent us, the church, to continue what he did. And he promises to be with us as we do that. So we're not called to be a holy huddle of people, feeding ourselves, getting fat on the good things God showers upon us. And over the 20 years of Trent Vineyard's existence, thousands of people who have been or currently are in the church who have gone out and served way, you know, millions of ways, maybe that's an exaggeration, many, many ways beyond our walls. And just to mention a few, just from the last year, people in this church have done these things, giving a microwave and other gifts to a single mum who escaped from the sex trafficking industry and was struggling. Taking meals and treats to a neighbor of a small group member who was unwell. Taking Christmas presents to bless the staff and clients of a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center. Holding a carol service for the elderly and giving out flowers to residents. Doing a gardening project for a neighbor who was struggling to managing manage it, uh, giving out goodie bags and hot drinks to students in a uh, medical library, feeding those sitting alone on their sleeping bags across the city center, and uh, painting the local community center of a church that reaches out to the elderly. And we see it even this week. Some of you are involved in City Alpha that's just going to begin. Just out there doing stuff to bless the city. Just as Jesus went out to all those around him, so many of you have gone out to demonstrate God's love for people in our city by meeting practical needs and expressing generosity. This last axiom we're gonna look at today comes from Jesus himself. No need to rephrase what he said. You are the light of the world. Twice in John's Gospel, he records Jesus as saying, I am the light of the world. And light, as you know, drives away darkness, Light reveals beauty that would otherwise not be seen. Light sustains life. Everything on the planet pretty much needs the sunlight to survive. Light shows the best path on which to walk. Light reveals truth and exposes falsehood. And when Jesus walked this earth, he was the light of the world. He did all those things and more. But amazingly, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said something rather interesting to his followers. This is Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. Wow, but Jesus, I thought you were. Yes, I am, and now so are you. You are the light of the world. 
A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus exhorts us to do good deeds which point people towards God. And he says, just go out and express, be light wherever you go. Where it's dark, light it up. Your presence will do that. Don't keep the light to yourself. Don't keep it locked up in your church building. Let your light shine before others. You know, Jesus is God incarnate. God became incarnate in flesh. And the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago walked around for 33 years as God incarnate. He is now, where is he? He's in heaven at the right-hand side of the Father. But God is still incarnate. He's still in flesh, in the body of Christ, which is us, the church across the whole world. We are the body of Christ. So we are his hands and his feet. We are the flesh expression of the nature of God. And he wants his light, which is in us, to shine through us. And when we do good deeds, when we burn with a passion for Jesus, it lights up the darkness. I have a dear friend who lives in a very different world to the one which, in which I live. He lives in a world that really is very dark. And he has, uh, I've known him for nearly 40 years. He was actually the inspiration behind my becoming a jeweler. And he's a, he was a big guy when I met him. He, I just worked it out this morning, he weighed just over two and a half times what I weighed. Big man and hard as nails. And anyway, I've uh, I'd lost touch with him for 30 years, but I prayed for him back in 1984 and the power of God touched him. There was a miraculous thing happened and he felt the incredible peace of God. And I lost touch for 30 years, but I recently reconnected with him and I went down to see him a few months ago and he's, um, his friends haven't improved. They're still those that, the police might describe as not fully respectful of the law. And uh, so anyway, I'm with him, and he's a great, de great deal of pain in his lower back. Also, his hands were just shaking. He has some nerve damage, and he's, he's a fair bit older than me. And so at the end of that evening, I just said, can I pray for you? And so I sat down on the sofa next to him. I laid my hands on him, and I prayed uh, just a whole bunch of prayers, and he sat very still, and at the end, he just said, wow. That's the same feeling I had in 1984. Such peace, just overwhelmed with a sense of peace. And he said, look, my hands have stopped shaking. They were just still. He uh, recently is in trouble, and uh, he texted me to say, my blood pressure is 228 over 109. I'm not even a medic, but I Googled it and discovered that's not good like it's terribly bad. So I called him, and uh, so I said, let me pray for you. So just over the phone, I just prayed and, and spoke into, you know, spoke healing to his blood pressure and all that sort of thing. And at the end of that phone call, he said, whenever you do that, I feel this incredible peace. And he said the first time I'd ever prayed for him all those years ago, he'd never known peace in his life. But when I pray for him, the peace of God comes, the presence of Jesus comes, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And um, so we, I love him, I always have, and he says, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a very bad man, I've uh, lived a very godless life, I don't know why you bother with me, but I'm like, because I love you, I always have, I've prayed for you over the years and will continue to be there for you. 
Now, it's not that we are such shiny people. It's because we carry Jesus' presence wherever we are. We, we walk into a dark place, we are light. We don't actually have to muster up trying to be light. We simply are lit up because of the presence of Jesus in us. Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, touches on this dynamic. He wrote this, 2 Corinthians 4. This comes from the message. Remember, our message is not about ourselves. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ the master. All we are is messengers, errand runners from Jesus for you. It started when God said, light up the darkness, and our lives filled up with his light as we saw and understood God in the face of Christ, all bright and beautiful. If you only look at us, you might well miss the brightness. We carry this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable great power with us. Paul is saying, the presence of Jesus, it's the presence of Jesus which lights up our lives. Our job is to stay connected to him. It's not to go around trying to muster up shining. It's actually to be connected with him. And if you're as old as me, you know that it's your oil in my lamp keeps me burning. It's not me trying to burn myself up. You probably would burn out if you did that. But his oil, if we stay in relationship abiding in Christ, that oil fuels the light that we have. The more of the life of Jesus we experience in our own lives, the more others will find the beauty and power of his light lighting up theirs. And as I've been saying through these previous points, Jesus has called us not to shine just when we're here in church, but as we leave to carry that light wherever we go. This picture shows a church at dusk, just as dusk is beginning to fall, and that church is full of light, See it glowing there through the windows, through the doors. Looks like a lovely and warm place to be. And so it should be. But the church is not called to be a holy huddle of Jesus followers, just lighting up each other's lives and enjoying the warmth of fellowship together. The church is not supposed to be contained in the church building. We meet together to worship to be encouraged in our faith, to care for one another, to spur one another on, and then we're to leave the building and spend the rest of the 168 hours each of us has each week lighting stuff up wherever we go. In contrast to that picture of a lit-up church, here's a little piece of film I just love. John Bodley discovered it last year and showed it. It captures something of what I'm trying to communicate. The one light Jesus is depicted by this firework shooting into the sky. And then there's a pause of anticipation. And then the followers of Jesus, the church, in all its expressions and beauty, burning with a passion for Jesus, every believer represented by a spark lights up the darkness. As we leave today, my prayer is that each of us will remember at least one of those axioms, doing the stuff that Jesus did, not just talking about it. We're not here to fill pews and wait to go to heaven. There is work to be done. The meat is in the street. We want to live out what the menu says. And you are the light of the world, so shine wherever you are. And be inspired, as Hebrews 13, 13 says, to go outside where Jesus is, where the action is.
Should we stand?